It's time to breathe new life into the social entrepreneur by empowering you to make a living through fulfilling work that will impact lives. You'll make money, but more importantly, you'll make a difference. Welcome to the Change Creator Podcast. It's time to build a business with purpose. Now here's your host, Adam Force. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to the Change Creator Podcast show. This is your host, Adam Force. Change Creator is all about social entrepreneurship. We actually have the first digital magazine on iTunes and Google Play for social entrepreneurs, and we hope you check that out. There is just so much good content in there to help people build a business they truly find meaningful to them while earning a living. Um, You just can't beat that, and we love social entrepreneurship because the idea of approaching business and using it as a tool for social change and environmental protection just seems to make a lot of sense and we hope to normalize that and get more people on track you know the question is no longer what do you want to be when you grow up it's really all about what problem do you want to solve and today we have some big time problem solvers that we're going to talk to and we have ned tozen who is the co-founder of a company called d light and his story is actually really interesting. His co- he, he works with Sam Goldman as his co-founder. Uh, Sam was in the Peace Corps um, and went through an incredible experience in West Africa. And at the same time, Ned was a serial entrepreneur and engineer. And he volunteered in Malawi, East Africa. I think I'm pronouncing that right. Um, And he was recording the personal histories of AIDS patients at the time. And after starting a number of companies, Ned entered uh, business school at Stanford, graduate. And that's where he actually met Sam Goldman. And what happened was, you know, he was really struck by what he saw um, by, you know, after with the Malawian families and their quality of life and the struggles and the challenges. And so he dedicated, he decided that he's going to make his life mission about empowering people at the bottom of the economic and social pyramid. And these guys teamed up because they met at Stanford Graduate School. They were both going through this process and decided, let's do something in the solar game. And using that engineering expertise, D-Light was born. So we're going to figure out how did they start this business? What did they have to go through? And there's just a ton of great insights shared by uh, Ned in this episode. So stick around for that. This, this interview will be part of the ninth edition of Change Creator Magazine with Dale Partridge. Dale Partridge is the founder of Sevenly and over half a dozen other multi-million dollar companies. And he's the author of People Before Profit. Um, the guy just has tremendous experience and his mindset really aligns with the idea of using business for a force for good. He's a real family man. He's got strong values and he has a ton of information to share. So you definitely want to check that out. Um, I think there's a lot you can get from him. And right now what he's focused on is helping people start their businesses. He's obviously mastered this craft. And so you go to startupcamp.com and he's got a whole entire program on there. So we do have a really in-depth conversation and a real powerful article with a ton of insights from from Dale that you'll wanna check out. Um, Please do leave us a a review in iTunes. This is really powerful uh, to help us keep this show moving. Um, I won't keep you any longer. Let's dive into the conversation with Ned and uh, see what we can learn. Hey, Ned, thanks so much for joining the Change Creator Podcast Show, man. How are you doing today? Yeah, doing great. Thanks for having me. 
Absolutely, absolutely. I, I really love uh, what you guys are doing, and I'm excited to, to dive into it and learn just kind of how you got there um, and really, you know, what your next steps are and your vision um, to share with the audience. So I always, you know, we'll start off with a little background. So if you can just give us a little sense of, well, how did you get to where you are? What were some of the events? What were you doing before D-Light? Um, and then how did you have that aha moment? Yeah, sure. And I'll, I'll share a little bit about my own story and how I got uh, got involved in this. And then I'll share a little bit also about my business partner, Sam, because our, our stories uh, become sort of intertwined. So I'll, I'll tell you about Perfect. Both. Myself, you know, I, I really got started uh, I, as an engineer. I, I worked, um, I, even before that, when I was in college, I uh, studied engineering. I also studied, studied earth science. So I was... Um, uh, you know, frankly, uh, interested in a lot of different things. And I found myself uh, as an undergrad, totally unable to specialize. So I, I actually changed my major about eight times before I settled on. Again. The only reason I double majored is because I, I just had so many credits and things that I was able to pull off two majors. But, um, you know, I found myself every time I started specializing in something, having this fear rise up of like, you know, this is really interesting, but do I really want to do this for the rest of my life? Yeah. Um, and kind of in parallel to that, uh, when I was an undergrad, I was, I, I actually started a little, couple little side businesses, like, um, just to kind of make some extra income. Uh, and, uh, I found that, you know, I liked entrepreneurship, but I, I didn't really think of myself as an entrepreneur. So after I graduated, I, I worked as an engineer for, uh, about six months. I was computer science, I was coding, uh, and I was working for a company doing, uh, technology for, uh, essentially music equipment. And, mm -hmm. Um, I ended up quitting after six months because I realized that I just, I didn't really want to be an engineer. I was actually pretty good at it, but I, um, so my, my boss there tried to convince me to stay, but I, I left to start up a company with some friends. And then I just found that I, I really loved entrepreneurship. So we actually started a business that was doing, uh, basically customized audio recordings and we were able to integrate like people's names into the recordings. We had this cool technology we developed and we used that to make kids music actually that um, incorporated the child's name. And we started distributing uh, the kind of ch customized children's music across the U.S. and then in different parts of, of Europe and Asia. Uh, and I, I found that, you know, I was just wired to be an entrepreneur uh, mm -hmm. because it, every day was interesting. I was always doing something new, um, but kind of in parallel to doing this, uh, I was doing a lot of um, like volunteer work. I, my my wife worked for uh, our church, and she was. I got a chance to go with her um, uh, overseas, with uh, particularly in Malawi, uh, working with people with uh, HIV/AIDS, and just mm -hmm. found myself, uh, you know, really impacted by that and wanting to do something in, in my life that would really make an impact. For people, especially people living in uh, the developing uh, developing countries and, yeah. and uh, people who are there. So, uh, but I just didn't see myself working for a nonprofit. I was not wired that way. And I, um, so I was just really interested in this intersection of entrepreneurship, technology, and, you know, making an impact. Yeah. Uh, and that was really why I went to business school. I wanted to figure out how to do those things. And um, I basically said, okay, uh, at that time, 
you know, I, I researched all the business schools and Stanford was kind of where it was at for social entrepreneurship at that time. Now, you know, thankfully this has spread to many, many more business schools, yeah. but I felt like Stanford was just doing a lot of really cool, uh, innovations, uh, around, they had this really cool program at the design school called design for extreme affordability. Right. Uh, and I was, I was like, I have to, I have to do that. That's exactly what I want to do. Yeah. Uh, so I ended up, uh, applying only there. And I figured if it was meant to be, I'd, I'd get in. So, you know, somehow they let me in and I, um, <laughs> I went there and just immersed myself in that world. And, um, and, and that that's was like I met 2005. Up. Is that 2005? Yeah, 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 exactly. Okay. Exactly. So I was in 2005 and, uh, I met up with Sam when I was there and we both were in this design for extreme affordability course. Uh, and just like a little side note on this, you know, for entrepreneurs, I think one of the characteristics that is kind of universal across entrepreneurs is just being tenacious and uh, persevering. So I actually didn't get into that class, um, but I was, because you have to apply to actually get in the class. It was yeah. this interdisciplinary thing with business students and engineers, et cetera. And I didn't get in, but I was just so determined to be in that course because I figured that was why I was there in business school. I just kept showing up. And then eventually they just let me in the class. Get out of here, <laughs> right? That's awesome. I love that. Yeah, yeah. So, so anyway, Sam um, was a really, I mean, really unique guy, also an American, but uh, his parents were in development. So he grew up uh, in India and Pakistan and parts of Africa. And his work career was actually in, in West Africa. And he had done Peace Corps in Benin, which is a country in, in uh, just next to Nigeria. And when he was in Peace Corps, he was living in a village, didn't have electricity, so he was actually burning a kerosene lamp for lighting, and his neighbor's son was burned in a kerosene accident. Um, and, you know, the, the boy survived, but was, you know, completely burned in pain for months and months. Yeah. And Sam had this experience and realized that this was an injustice, that, you know, you have about... Um, two billion people in the world who rely on kerosene as their primary source of lighting, which is more people than in Thomas Edison's time uh, when he invented the light bulb. So it's right. a huge number of people uh, who are still burning kerosene for lighting. And there should be technology that should make kerosene completely obsolete. I mean, uh, even for people who don't have an electric connection, um, there's technology, there's LEDs, there's things you can do to actually enable people to just, you know, skip uh, uh, leapfrog over kerosene lanterns and use something much better, much more affordable. See? But businesses weren't taking it seriously. So he wanted to do something about it. So uh, we connected through the uh, design school and, and business school and, and um, you know, pretty quickly became friends and, and business partners yeah. uh, kind of simultaneously. And we, uh, we kicked it off um, and put Together and had some team with uh, a few engineers as well. So we had a, a core team that we put together and basically made that while we were in business school. And by the time we graduated, uh, uh, raised a bit of seed funding enough to enable us to get the company started. And then basically, Sam moved to India to figure out how. To well, let me pause you there. If you sell don't mind. the stuff. Let me, and let me just pause you there for make it quick second because you're you're going yeah. through a lot of stuff that I want to dive into and so oh yeah you um you know you're showing up to this class now was this a class you could just attend but you wouldn't get credits for meaning like you can go but you weren't actually accepted but then they ultimately accepted you right yeah you're not really supposed to not even supposed to show up just attend. <laughs> I don't know why they you know, I don't know why they let me do it but I think 
uh, they were also, you know, it was it was kind of a scrappy uh, setup at the design school at that time. They've gotten more organized yeah, uh, since yeah, yeah. since then, but maybe I just kind of fell through the cracks and no one. <laughs> no one like wanted to turn me away. Yeah, just so curious. I don't really know. Yeah, yeah it's interesting. Uh, and I love that story though of how you were persistent, just kind of kept knocking on the door and showing up. And I, I just I think that's such an important thing for people to yeah. you know, if you believe in something and you know you feel it in your gut that it's the right thing, you just you just gotta try to make it happen, <laughs> you know. Um and the next thing I really yeah. wanted to understand yeah. is you met other engineers and things through this class like Sam and you guys built a team. So you started this with co founders. Yeah. How did you set that up? Um how did you guys agree? and start manifesting the idea um and what did it start as Hello, something Adam, else first there? oh yeah can you hear me mm. did i lose you lisa there? are you there i don't know who got dropped um hmm. i hear you uh hello can you hear me now Hello? Hmm. I've lost my connection here. Hi, it's Lisa Ann. I've been on mute. Um, I can, if we, if, uh, I can use our, a conference line and record it and send the audio to you afterwards, if that would work. It should, I mean, I don't know what, the, can you hear me right now? I can hear you, but I think, I think, I think, um. Ned, can you hear me too? Huh, I don't know what's going on. Hello? Is, yeah. <laughs> There we go. I'm sorry about that. I don't know if that was my side. Were you guys still on? We heard each other. Um, yeah. You've been getting... Now, Lisa, have you been hearing Ned um, cut out a little bit here and there? Yeah, or no? He's been cutting out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. it's been. Okay. I just, it hasn't been bad enough where I paused you on it, but um, yeah. I don't Do know. You want, I can just call you if that would be better. Call me. I don't have a way to record outside of Skype. Yeah, oh, yeah we, okay. can, we can use my conference line. And then I can record it that way and then send you the audio afterwards. If you use my conf I mean, but would I be able to use, because if I use okay. Skype, I'm using a microphone so I have, so that we have better, like a quality. Uh, uh, I, I don't want to use a telephone. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, because the conference line just automatically records okay. the, uh, the audio from the line. All right, let's give it one more shot here and see if okay. we can get through. Um, you can hear me now, right? So I, don't, I, don't... I hear you. I hear you guys fine. So okay. I'm sorry. There's something on my end, but. Um, right. No, it's no problem. It's okay. Sometimes that kind of stuff where it gets a little robotic and it like has a hesitation in the audio, it doesn't always, it may be what we hear, but it's not necessarily what is recording. So sometimes it's oh, not actually recorded that way. Yeah. Um, so, I, and, and even if it was, it hasn't been so bad that we can't like understand what's going on. Um, so I'll let you know if it gets really bad. I'll jump in and okay. just pause you. Um, if you obviously, if you can't hear me, let me know. I remember. Yeah. So what I was just going to start to ask you, I'm going to say, I'm just going to start up again, and I'm going to start asking you about um, how you started uh, delight, like what your arrangement was, and how you started uh, manifesting the idea. Okay, so. So, so Ned, tell me, I'm, I'm just curious, um, how did you, when you started, you, you were in this course and you hooked up with these other guys, Sam and these engineers, and you started, now did it start as D-Lite? Was that the concept? And what was your arrangement with them when you started doing this and bringing this idea to life? Yeah, really for the first year, it was pretty informal. So we had, uh, we were essentially kind of incubated at the design school. We were... Kind of a design school project, and in fact, the reason we called our company Delight 
um, was because the D school called themselves, or the design school called themselves the D dot school. Mm. And so we, we thought D dot light made sense. It kind of, you know, links back to our design you know, roots. Yeah. And it also expresses, that's the emotion we want our customers to feel. So we really liked the name. Uh, but that's, so the name kind of came out of the design school and we didn't have you know, shares. We didn't create a company. We were just focused on, on, can we turn this into a viable business? So we were um, putting together, you know, prototypes, business plans. Uh, we had a partner that we got linked to through the design school that was based in Myanmar. So we had a, a chance to take a couple trips out there, yeah. uh, really work with customers. Sam and I basically spent our Christmas break um, for a few weeks in Myanmar, you know, kind of rapid prototyping with customers in the field and understanding how do we get the the value proposition right right and really it was at the end of our uh, just as we were graduating we uh, won a really huge business plan competition and, and we got 250,000 bucks through this competition it was a, a business plan really big competition one. um is that what you said yeah yeah That's, it was I've never DFJ. Heard of it. yeah exactly yeah, so basically, it, this is Draper Fisher Jurvetson had this business plan competition called the Venture Challenge, DFJ Venture Challenge. Mm. And you were only eligible to participate in that if you've won your business school's business plan competition. Now, the tricky thing was Stanford at that time, their competition with the results were going to be announced after this DFJ competition was happening. So, uh, anyway, we kind of convinced the, <laughs> the people organizing this DFJ. FJ competition to let us in. And we said, oh, we're confident we're going to win our business, business school competition. Can you please let us in? Because we have a really cool story. Mm. And and they did. And we ended up uh, winning this entire thing, which was a complete shock, to be honest. The second prize <laughs> is zero in this competition. And first prize was $250,000, which was, you know, that's uh, was enough for us to get started. Um, and uh, basically, that was at the end of May. Uh, in 2007. And basically at that point we said, okay, we got to incorporate, um, so we can, uh, cash a check. So we need to create a company. (laughs) Um, and then we, you know, just, we figured out kind of the, uh, shareholder structure and all that kind of stuff, you know, at that point. So, you know, really for the year leading up to it, we were all just, I think the thing is that really drew us all together. We were not focused on like the, uh, like those kinds of details, we're just focused on can we make an impact in the world and can we can we do this? Uh, so I think our, our motivations were always very aligned from the beginning, and um, you know that's how we got started. Yeah, I mean that's interesting, and so and I think if you make an important point almost indirectly, but it's like you had certain focus in the beginning, meaning you were really just making sure you had a viable idea and the, the, some of the other things, you know, people get very overwhelmed with all the things they have to do and they can spread themselves so thin that they, they kind of don't get the traction that they need. So it sounds like you were talking to people, prototyping, really getting a sense of uh, what direction to go. And if this is actually something that would be viable or how to position it and make it viable. Um, and yeah. once you had that stuff, it became more real. You, and when you did this business plan competition, was this a traditional business plan? Meaning, you know, I got 50 pages with all this stuff, or is it the more modern day business plan? Cause this was a while ago now, meaning like the business canvas where it's a page or up to five pages. Like what, how heavy was the business plan? Yeah, it ranged. Cause we did a few competitions actually. Um, and, a lot of them required like a lot of pros. So it was like this like 
30 or 40 page wow. thing that we never used again. Right, uh, exactly. so, <laughs> so, you know, it wasn't that useful. I think as uh, there, there was, I think, at least one business plan competition we did where it was essentially a slide deck, which is now, um, you know, what, what I see, which is, is much more common. So that's much more practical because uh, it's these things have to be living documents and um, you have to update them all the time. And it's right. it, really having like a, a book you're writing <laughs> about it doesn't doesn't really get you anywhere. <laughs> well, right. And most of the stuff. Gets yeah, but, but we did that in that case. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's immediately outdated. It's really it, uh, an entertaining thing to do is to go back and look at our original business plan <laughs> and kind of, you know, it's almost comical now because it just uh, I mean, just there's so many things you don't know when you're getting started. So you yeah. have to adapt quickly yeah all hypotheses yeah for sure yeah exactly um yeah so let me so i i'm just curious then you know all right so you got the idea started and how did you i guess now that you had a stable business plan and you got you even got seed funding in the door because you're winning these competitions what were the first steps um to start adopting um you know an audience and getting people to just know who you are and understand who you are i mean obviously you had some exposure from some of the things you were doing but really getting like customers and actually making it so you're you're selling things now like how did you approach yeah. that marketing yeah you know in our case you know, we're trying to reach customers who are off grid. They don't have access necessarily to traditional media. And, you know, we were sitting there in, you know, California, essentially, <laughs> with, with this business plan and a prototype. So as quickly as possible, we wanted to get out there into the market. So, you know, pretty much right after we got, um, right, right after we got the funding, and it was right before we, we moved. Uh, so we actually relocated overseas. Yeah. But um, Sam and I did essentially a one month trip in India where we met with uh, partners. So we weren't necessarily going to the end customer yet because we didn't have a, a product to sell at that point. We had a prototype. So we went to uh, to partners that we kind of lined up these meetings through our, our personal networks, our business school networks, through as many uh, uh, links as we could, uh, you know, we could find. Uh, and sometimes one leading meeting would lead to a meeting with someone else. So we just kind of networked as much as we could through India um, and did kind of a tour across the country of various different partners who could, uh, you know, sell our products potentially to the end customers. So we were looking for distribution partners, essentially. Um, and at that point, we were really looking to get uh, an MOU or LOI, so like Memorandum of Understanding or Letter of Intent from some of these partners saying, yes, if you make this product available and it's at this price, I will buy, you know, a thousand of them or 5,000 right. of them, whatever right. it would be. Cause at that point, that was sort of what we needed uh, at that stage in order to sort of go beyond prototype stage to mass production stage. And I think for a company making hardware, it does require a lot of funding. We ended up raising about a million and a half um, after that first year. So we could really, you know, launch our products in the market. So, but the 250 K and that initial seed funding really enabled us to go from kind of the concept and the, the basic right. prototype to something where we say, okay, here's the customers, here's the orders, or, you know, what we would have, should we build this? Here's the factory we're going to work with and, you know, kind of have that all laid out so we can, we could really hit the gas once, you know, yeah. we got the funding. Yeah. And, and so I just want to ask her, so like, when you're people, one of the struggles a lot of, uh, especially social entrepreneurs have is they're always looking to uh, get funding and they struggle with that kind of approach and, and getting the money they need to do the, do their actual project. So do you have any tips based on your experience with that? Just, 
I mean, how, what did you have to present to people? How did you manage those conversations? And did you look for certain types of distributors? Um, you know, like what are some of the things that people might want to look out for to be more successful with landing funding? Yeah. So I think there's a few things that you just look for. And frankly, I think this is true whether you're you know, focusing on social impact or just on profit. Uh, I think I, I found actually there's there's less you would imagine between the way impact investors think and the way sort of venture investors think, um, at, least, at least in my experience. And I think you know the few things they look for. Number one, they're looking for a team that they can believe in, uh, that they feel is passionate and really motivated uh, to essentially change the world. You know whether or not um, you're doing that with an explicit like social mission focus. I think uh, entrepreneurs in general who are just Kind of religiously passionate about what they're they're doing are, are much more likely to succeed than you know entrepreneurs just looking to make a quick return, for example. Yeah. Um, so you know, looking for that that team with and with the right skill set, of course, uh, as well. So mm-hmm. just looking for that the right team. That's number one. I think number two is uh, you're really looking at how big is the market potential, or you could think of it as impact potential. But you know, either way, it's like what is your addressable market? And I think in our case, the addressable market was huge, I and mean, we're talking about there's 1.2 uh, billion people with absolutely no electric connection at all. Yeah. And then you have another billion people who are technically connected and reliable. Uh, so they're pretty much on kerosene, you know, for time. So the market size was huge. People were spending huge amounts of money already uh, on kerosene lamps, not to mention the um, amount people spend, you know, charging up their mobile phones because yeah. they don't have power in their home or the need for other appliances. They have the whole world of other appliances. So, the market size was just vast and unaddressed. So I think, you know, that that was clearly there. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, then it just sort of the credibility on how can you execute on this? And do you have any competitive advantages? And, you know, is there a first mover advantage in this market? Those those kinds of questions. And I think uh, really kind of going from that seed round into the, uh, the next round of capital really was about proving, yes, we can execute on this. And if we move quickly, we can build the brand in this space and, uh, you know, and build something that's really defensible. Uh, and I think that was the case we made, whether it was an impact investor or a venture investor. And we had uh, a mix of both uh, in our uh, in our seed round. Uh, we had kind of uh, in- impact investment right. funds and venture investment funds uh, that, that put money into us. And I, I don't think it's necessarily true for every kind of business you do or social impact business that you have the same kind of alignment between sort of um, kind of financial growth versus the, uh, the impact. But in, in our case, I just see it, it very analogous to like the mobile where you know, the initial pioneers who went to mobile in Africa, I mean, they were really, I mean, motivated by, by impact actually, but there was a huge business to be uh, built there that generate huge amounts of impact. And I think leapfrog totally over landline infrastructure in many of the countries we operate in, solar is going to do the same thing in these markets. They'll just leapfrog completely the grid. Uh, so, uh, and I think there's a big business to be built 
And that, you know, in doing that, you will really positively impact. They're very linked together. We've, right. you know, be able to have pretty good alignment between sort of commercial investors and impact investors. Yeah, I mean, it all makes sense. And, you know, even talking to uh, Dr. Alistair Harris, he said something similar. He said the only way I could address the actual problem that uh, he was witnessing was he had to, you know, stop being a biologist and start be- putting his business hat on and find a yeah. way to fund yeah. what he's doing. So, you you know, obviously we live within a, within an economic system. So you if the money and the mission have to work together. And so he had to build yeah. the model so that he could support the mission. And I think, yeah, you have to have a market. Otherwise, you can't scale or you can't, you're not going anywhere. <laughs> Yeah, that's exactly right. And so I'm looking, you know, I look around your website and you you have some interesting statistics here that I just want to chat on real quick. Um, let me just pull them up so I can see exactly, but it was about, I think you have a reach of impacting 65 million lives empowered. Can you just talk about that a little bit? How do you get to that number? And that means people who have, um, you know, I guess have one of your products mm-hmm. and they are, you know, using their, their now they have lighting. Yeah, that's right. So we set a goal actually when we got started of impacting 100 million people by 2020. Yeah. So we're we're actually getting pretty close to that goal, which is really exciting because you know, it seems crazily ambitious when we got yeah, started. I mean, it's huge. It's huge. To set a goal like that, and and the way we we calculate that, uh, and in fact, you know, as the our the industry for off grid solar has matured, because uh, there actually is now a little industry around this, yeah. uh, we've standardized and harmonized the metric for how do you calculate if a life is empowered by, by these products. And, and what we what we do is we take, you know, how many people are roughly in a household where these products are sold that are now getting solar uh, lighting instead of kerosene. And, uh, you know, it basically is somewhere, it's a multiple that's in the like 4 to 4.5x range yeah. of C-cell. It kind of there's some discount side there can be a little different um uh depending on we don't count sales you know like to campers in the u.s and right so they might be slightly empowered <laughs> right 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 that in our, our tally. so it's it's purely you know people that you know these products are are you know uh it's changing their lives yeah, I mean, I just it's such a it seems like such a simple uh solution that you have to scratch your head and can't believe it hasn't been done before. I guess that always happens, right? <laughs> when something like this comes out. Um so when you were doing the engineering of it, um how was that process? I mean, is that something I, how long did it take for you to get your first prototype and um it it se- they seem like nice and easy to use simple solutions. But was the engineering actually very difficult? Like, what were some of the challenges you came challenges you came across, or what was that process like? Yeah, I think you know the when you look at the designs, especially for those entry level products that we yeah. have, because now we have everything from solar lantern up through you know more internal systems are more complicated. Uh, but when you look at the, the entry, you know, honestly, the designs are pretty are pretty simple. Uh, but you know, there's a couple of things that were actually really complex to do. I, one was getting the price point right. And, and in order to do that, we found really had to work in partnership with the entire supply chain. So I think a lot of companies doing hardware uh, will kind of just take a, you know, they create a cool design and they sort of chuck it over the fence to some contract manufacturer, typically they're in China, and then out comes the price and, you know, then it's, you make it. But right. uh, what we found is that the prices that we would get back if we check something over the wall were crazily high, um, and 
we really had to get into you know every detail of okay what kind of plastic resin are we using what kind of you know who are the um uh, where are we on the cost efficiency curves for the leds how do we work to get the right binning and the leds all sorts of crazy sort of yeah. details around the supply chain to really optimize the solution for the customer and not just on price or by the way but also for quality because our customers you know they they may not care about for example uh the color variation on the plastic we we can have larger tolerances around those and if we're you know selling to an apple store for example but uh when it comes to ruggedness and durability our customers have much higher requirements than a typical like u.s camper for instance who might yeah, be using right. the product yes. because these guys are using the products every day places where our customers live, you know, uh, a kid is going to drop the product, you know, now and again. I mean, they have to be really durable and survive in some pretty harsh conditions and be able to be used every single day reliably. Is, is there is there an estimated so, um, uh, lifeline of use? Meaning, like, they obviously don't want to, they can't afford to buy them over and over and over. So uh, do you have, right. like, a determined lifeline for them? Yeah, you know, we, we always aim for uh, a, a lifetime of around 10 years on all of our components. And, you know, really kind of what we communicate is that it's a five-year, you know, plan for the product to be used for five years. And then we aim for the products to be, to pay for themselves within three to six months. Right. Um, you know, in the sense of you're no longer having to buy kerosene or, or pay for getting your mobile phone charged. So we, we want it always to be a real no-brainer economic decision for the customer. Yeah, that's amazing. I love it. That's really good stuff. Um, and I guess, yeah. what are your what is your vision now? I guess obviously you're going for that one million. Is there anything else going on that uh, is in your vision for the next couple years? And I'm just curious, as you're trying to hit that one million, what some of your challenges are that you're coming across that you're trying to overcome right now? Yeah. So there's, there's a couple things. You know, one is just continuing to scale, uh, kind of as you as you highlighted, and I think. Going from that 65 million to 100 million in the next couple of years, we're very focused on continuing to expand the the base of customers. Uh, and I think, in addition to that, though, what uh, what we're really doing is not just getting sort of more people, you know, on that first rung of the energy access ladder, which is lighting, uh, but we want to help migrate them up the ladder as well. So we're increasingly focusing on uh, systems, uh, solar home systems that. Uh, provide you know light and things like entertainment like radio or TV. Um, we're looking at other kinds of appliances uh, that can be powered as well, and you know really kind of providing people a more and more similar experience to that of you know having a complete electric connection. Yeah, and yeah. you know the next five years as, as technology continues to improve, as solar costs continue to come down, as efficiencies of devices. Uh, continue to, to improve. Really, do think uh, in five years you're going to be able to have solar homes uh, solutions that are very affordable. They actually do provide uh, a very similar experience to grid. And you know, we're starting we're we're starting to migrate customers up the energy access ladder towards that. Yeah. And we're finding that a lot of customers who have used a solar lantern from Delight for for the last few years, they realize that a you know solar can be reliable and really good. And B, you know, the D-Lite brand is a brand they can trust. So when they're now kind of making a bigger purchase, say it's a $100 or $200 system that, by the way, is financed over time because these customers, they can't afford that much right. money up front, but right. they can afford to pay for it over time. 
you know, they're willing to make that investment with us because, you know, we're a brand that, that they know is there. We're committed to their market. We're, uh, we're trustworthy. Um, and we've delivered for them. And I think, you know, one of the things I've really uh, have been continually amazed by is the importance of brand in these rural markets where, you know, frankly, these customers are used to getting screwed by low quality products that don't right. deliver on their promises. So when a brand comes in and actually over delivers on what they say, um, it, it really builds loyalty. And, you know, we're finding that that's quite valuable. And, and do you talk to the people a lot? Like, or do you visit and get feedback and do real time discussions or do you do surveys? Like, I don't know if you are building an audit, like an email list with these customers and stuff and get, you know, how, how do you get feedback from people? Yeah, all sorts of ways. Um, you know, everything from sort of the kind of broad base of getting information, and those are uh, typically through phone calls. We have call centers in, in some of the key markets we work in, wow. so we'll we'll follow up with customers. We also have uh, more in-depth research where we have our product uh, designers. They go out and spend time with, uh, you know, in villages with customers, really kind of interviewing to a deeper level to under to get insights yeah. and to test out. And then, you know, just from uh, kind of, a, uh, I guess, a cultural level for the company, uh, we do try to have field visits uh, where we visit customers. So, for example, um, you know, I, I was living this last year in Kenya with my family, and I had a chance, uh, this is a few weeks ago now, uh, to go out and um, customers that were, were living in rural Kenya and actually took my four-year-old son uh, to go, go with me because a lot of these families also have and it was, I think, also really cool for him to be able to uh, kind of see. I don't know how much he really, you know, totally comprehended. But, you know, there's like kids his age just goes off and kind of plays with them. And, uh, you know, I was hearing this at one one of these families was telling me that he liked them. Uh, this was a, a family who had bought one of our home systems. Uh, the reason they got it is because their their kid, who's my my son's age, um, was having respiratory issues. And they went to the, the doctor and the doctor advised them. Uh, to get rid of their kerosene lamp because that might be causing issues for yeah, their uh, yeah. their son. So, um, so they did. They they invested in a home system. They got rid of their kerosene lamps, and actually, after that, he's he's been breathing completely fine. His respiratory issues have gone away. Um, so it's just like really cool to see that kind of stuff. It's and amazing. I think oh my it's god! Important. You must yeah. have felt great about that. Yeah, you know, it's it's amazing to see, and I think you know we we want to. As a company, you know, always be humble. And at the end of the day, our, our customers are our boss. You know, at yeah. the end of the day, yeah. if we don't have good value for money for them, we don't have a business. So, you know, we have to um, we have to spend time with them. We have to listen to them, uh, and you know, and and respect them. Absolutely. And um, you know, I think that's something that we really have as a core part of our DNA. Well, it sounds like you're doing all the right things and it's working. So, you know, I, I think uh, you guys are uh, doing a lot of great work and um, I want to be respectful of your time. So we'll wrap up here and uh, just I want to give you a chance. H how do people find you, learn about what you're doing, buy your products? If you want to give a little shout out to um, those things to give people a little guidance on that. <laughs> Yeah, great. Uh, well, you know, it's very easy. All you have to do is go to our website, which is www.delight.com, D-L-I-G-H-T.com. Mm -hmm. And from there, you can learn more about the company. If you're interested in buying our 
probably on amazon.com, but there'll be links from our website for that as well. So, yeah. um, and, and really appreciate it, Adam, for the, uh, the interview. It was really great talking with you. Yeah, no, I love your story. And just so people know on your website, there's a right in the navigation, it says where to buy. Um, so really cool, yeah. uh, a lot of different solutions, really cool stuff. And you can see also uh, a social impact tab, you can see what these guys are doing, um, and how they're impacting, um, you know, carbon offsets and, you know, the people that are actually, you know, benefiting and all these different things. So it sounds like there's just a number of benefits that are trickling down from your work. And, uh, you know, it's been, it sounds like it's been a really a, a, a tough, you know, engineering road, but it's uh, really coming together and things are going well. So I'm I'm happy to see uh, everything you're doing, and I appreciate your time to talk through it. All right, great. Well, thank you so much, Adam. No problem. Um, well, if you ever need anything, you know where to reach me. And uh, until next time. All right. Take care. Take care. That's all for this episode. Your next step is to join the change creator revolution by downloading our interactive digital magazine app for premium content, exclusive interviews, and more ways to stay on top of your game. Available now on iTunes and Google Play or visit changecreatormag.com. We'll see you next time where money and meaning intersect right here at the Change Creator Podcast. 